welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast. My name is Victoria Smith and I am your host of the Girl Tries Life podcast, which is all about giving you tangible, actionable tips to lead your most vibrant life. We do this by alternating our weekly podcast between coaching episodes so that you've actually got the skills to work on your own life, your own goals on a regular basis. And we alternate also with case studies, really, interviews with women who are doing just that, who are living vibrant lives, whatever that means to them, whatever their career looks like, their structure. I have really handpicked some incredible ladies to inspire you. So the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. Now, one of the podcasts I want to let you know about is this Back to School Again podcast. So it's a podcast that's affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network, and it's about people who made the decision in their midlife to return to school, either to pursue a new type of career, to augment their current career, or just for the sheer challenge of learning something new. It features conversations with a wide range of midlife learners who are currently enrolled in post-secondary studies or who have recently completed a post-secondary degree. It shares their stories, what brought them to this moment, how they balance their responsibilities of school, work, family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. So I will link to that in today's show notes. I also want to talk a little bit about the Alberta Podcast Network. The Alberta Podcast Network is made up of podcasts created by Albertans from all over the province on all kinds of different topics. Now we've had some new members to the network. I just want to tell you about one in particular called Repodcasting. So this is a really cool podcast where you can join hosts Janet and Lucia as they recast your favorite and not-so-favorite movies. Some of the movies they've talked about today include The Girl on the Train, La La Land, The Hunger Games, The Matrix, Gone Girl, Star Wars. You know, it's really, really funny. And they've got such a great dynamic between them. So I will link to that in today's show notes. And again, if you're looking for a new podcast to to connect with, I would check out albertapodcastnetwork.com. There's everything from entertainment, movies, arts and culture, business and marketing, educational, self-improvement, politics, you name it. We've got it covered. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Mary Robinette Kowal. Mary is an author. She's an audiobook narrator. She is a puppeteer and she is a podcaster. She's basically an all-around storyteller. She lives in Chicago with her husband, Robert. They're two cats and over a dozen manual typewriters, a girl after my own heart. Now, I first got to see Mary perform, basically she gave a keynote and a workshop that I attended at the Surrey International Writers Conference. And I was just so blown away by by her storytelling and by the work that she does and her view on life. So this episode was a really interesting one where we talk about how she juggles everything, to be honest, and how she keeps it straight. She talks particularly about what she calls structured procrastination. We talk about having a non-traditional career path and what's the advice that she has for multi-passionate individuals who might be afraid to embark on this kind of non-traditional path. We talk about how you balance mental health when you're in this deep work mode because writing can be a very insular profession. We also talk about how she keeps content fresh on her podcast considering writing excuses has been going for 13 seasons. We also talk about the legacy that she hopes to have in her life. Mary has a new book that's just come out called Calculating Stars. So I'm just going to read the synopsis really quickly because... I'm giving away an audiobook version of Calculating Stars, which is read by Mary herself. So it's a fantastic opportunity to get a copy for free. So here is the description. 
A meteor decimates the U.S. government and paves the way for a climate cataclysm that will eventually render the Earth inhospitable to humanity. This looming threat calls for a radically accelerated timeline in the Earth's efforts to colonize space, as well as an unprecedented opportunity for a much larger share of humanity to take part. One of these new entrants in the space race is Elma York, whose experience as a WASP pilot and mathematician earns her a place in the International Aerospace Coalition's attempts to put man on the moon. But with so many skilled and experienced women pilots and scientists involved, it doesn't take long before Elma begins to wonder why they can't go into space too, aside from some pesky barriers like thousands of years of history and a host of expectations about the proper place of the fairer sex. And yet Elma's drive to become the first lady astronaut is so strong that even the most dearly held conventions may not stand a chance. So like I said, I am giving away a copy of The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Kowal. So here is how to enter. I am going to have two different posts, one that's on Instagram and one that's on Twitter. So you don't, if you're not an Instagram person, you don't have to go on Instagram. If you're not a Twitter person, don't go on Twitter. You know what I'm saying. And I will link to both of those posts in today's show notes, which are on girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash eight zero. So on both of those posts, you will see a picture of the audiobook. I'm going to pin it to the top of my tweets so that you don't lose it. And basically, I just want you to share it on Twitter. Simply want you to retweet it. Please make sure you're following me on Twitter as well, because if you don't follow me, I can't DM you if you win. And on Instagram, if you enter there, basically just tag a person who you think would like, would really like the book or would really like the Girl Tries Life podcast. Now, you do also have to be following Mary Robinette Kowal and you have to be following whatever account you choose to share these on, whether it's Instagram or Twitter, so that I can actually message you. You don't follow me, I can't message you. So that's the way it goes. Again, all the instructions for that or all the links to those specific posts will be in the show notes for today. So you can find it there and it's an audiobook version. The value of that is typically $30 for an audiobook. So you're saving yourself some coin and getting to listen to the audiobook read by the author herself. And she is such an incredible narrator. You will be able to tell that from the voice in this interview itself. So again, show notes, girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash eight zero. Now, without further ado, let's head over to the interview. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited to have you. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So as listeners will have heard from the little bio that we've we've done, you have a very diverse, varied career, but it all centers around storytelling. Yeah, and thank you for recognizing that. Most people think that I have three different careers, and I really just have the one. And the the puppetry, the audiobooks, and the writing, they're all extensions of this idea of being a storyteller or, or a freelancer, really, in a lot of ways. But it's interesting because, you know, one's more visual, one's auditory, one's the writing. Like, it, you really pull in all aspects. That must be enjoyable. It, it is. And I, I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything. Like my mom had me in every conceivable class as a child because I just, it's all interesting to me. 
But a lot of it is, like, let's take the, the visual and the storytelling. Those two are way more closely linked than people think they are. So when I am designing a show for puppet theater, I'm having to do all of the same world building problem solving that I have to do when I'm writing. I have to think about the way things look. I have to think about the interconnected pieces. I have to think about what's going to support the story that I want to tell. I have to think about who the character is and how that's going to to express. So there's those are all the same things that I do when I am thinking about actually writing them. In fact, when I am designing a show, my writing productivity drops way down. And when I'm writing, my urge to design and build drops to almost nothing. So, like I can perform and and write, but uh, design build those and and writing that is wow, that is not compatible. Yeah, well, I'll I'll pop back to that in a second. But yeah, you handle so many different creative aspects. It's not even just how do you keep them all straight, but how do you balance them? So it sounds like when one is in the real creative mode, the other can be in a performing mode? Or is that is it just a give and take? It's, it's a give and take. I mean, one of the reasons that I'll sometimes say that really what I am as a freelancer is that all of these are on a very crass level, different income streams. So I have different deadlines I have to juggle. Uh, I have different bosses that I have to satisfy, different audiences and and different income streams. So basically what I do is a form of structured procrastination, <laughs> which is that I look at uh, what is due next, what is gonna pay the rent and what do I wanna do? Those are the the kind of three things that I consider one of those is going to have a little more urgency than the others. And that's the one that I will gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. And, and then when I run out of steam on it, then I switch over to one of the other things that I'm doing and work on that until I need to switch back. So it's really, it's, it's really a, a lot of back and forth. Um, and, and also I'll say that one of the goals that I've had in all of my careers, um, has been to hit the point where I can, turn down the gigs I don't want to do. And are you at that point? With some of the things, like with puppetry, there are gigs that I would like to be able to do that I'm, I'm not getting hired for, largely because I live in Chicago and most of the really cool stuff is in New York. But the other aspect of that is that there are shows that I could do in Chicago and a lot of them involve touring to elementary schools and I'm just not interested in doing that anymore. I loved it when I did it. But it's grueling, and I have things I would rather be doing. Yeah, I can imagine. But if I did not have the writing and the audiobooks, I would absolutely still need to tour into elementary schools to make a living in puppetry. Well, and you're also on Patreon, mm -hmm. which seems to... I, I was just looking on your page. Does that provide any comfort that there's sort of that standard monthly income? It makes a huge difference. I'm on Patreon and Drip, and both of those two give me this level of security. Since starting those, it has been so much more relaxing, and I have been able to turn down things that I don't want to do. It means that I'm not having to record as many books using a pseudonym mm -hmm. as I used to have to do. There are aspects of being a freelance artist that people don't think about. They always think, oh, it sounds like a great thing. You get to, you know, with audiobooks, you get to sit in a room and just read books out loud all day. And I'm like, yeah, but you also have to read lines like, 
she released his love snake from its den in prison. <laughs> Actual published line of fiction. <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about when I'm saying I get to turn some stuff down now and I'm I'm happy to do that. I feel like I mean, erotica is is a really useful and good form. It's not to put erotica down at all. The times that I would use pseudonyms are when it is badly written, and there is nothing quite as excruciating as having to narrate a badly written orgasm. Oh, jeez. I can only imagine. Well, so the pseudonym came in handy then. Oh, yes. my gosh. Yeah. yeah, and not even my husband knows it. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's It's interesting that you're saying that in terms of being able to when you're losing steam on one project going to another because I think for artists who are maybe just have one area of focus one project one passion area that when they reach burnout they don't know what to do or that writer's block or whatever you want to call it yeah and I think that's really dangerous I did go through a phase where I was where the writing was the predominant creative release. I had had a, ironic, this is a funny phrase, but it's true. I had had a severe puppet injury. I Yes, I read about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was out of performance for about two years and it was before I started doing audiobooks. So the writing was pretty much what was happening for me creatively. And during that time, what I found is that I would bounce from short story to novel, novel to short story, I would bounce back and forth. And I would, I would use the structured procrastination technique on those two things. I also did a lot of baking. I do think that it's really important for an artist to have an outlet that is not connected to a deadline, that is not connected to any expectations, that is just purely for the joy and pleasure of it. I crochet, I make Regency gowns, I do hand sewing. People have suggested that I could sell things. I'm like, I don't want to. I want something that is just for pleasure. Because puppets started as a career, or started as a hobby that became a career. Writing started as a hobby that became a career. One could argue that audiobooks started as a hobby that became a career because I was doing radio theater, uh, which is fun, but does not pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that in Big Magic about not putting that pressure on your art. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I guess more in a in a in Big Magic, it always did seem to me there was a bit of an underlying "don't put the pressure on it." But if it does make money for you one day, that's great, kind of thing. But it's nice that you've got these projects that are specifically passion for the love of it, no intention of of making money from them. Yeah. And my goal with with the ones that are the careers is to, to hone them over time so that I am really only doing the things that I want to do. Like the the last puppetry project that I did that I got that was not just goofing around with friends was uh, was Sesame Street, mm-hmm. you know, which doesn't suck. No. So is that a lot of people wouldn't think Sesame Street is still on today because we're we're much older, but it's exciting to see that it's still out there. Do you get to design the piece for it or do Sesame Street come? (laughs) Do they come with you with the script and the? 
No, no, no. I when I when I get to go do Sesame Street or things like that, I am so far down the hierarchy. Okay. I am an assistant puppeteer. My first gig on Sesame Street was I was a piece of pizza on a stick. It's <laughs> not even a character. It's literally a piece of pizza on a stick. My job was to hit Grover in the face and years of puppet training taught me how to stick with the right viscosity of the cheese to have it release in the slow manner of mozzarella not provolone and then to drop with true gravity out of frame <laughs> i love it years of training oh yeah. acting involved but do you get like but it's still an enjoyable process working with oh, yeah. these master puppeteers Yes, yes, yes. They're wonderful people. Most of them I've known for decades at this point. Puppetry is a very small community. Yeah. Your blue puppet, what is what is she named? They are named Lee. Lee. Ah, okay. I remember seeing you uh seeing Lee speak at the Surrey uh writers conference when you gave a keynote and it was I always wondered the same for whether it's for actors or writers that sometimes you can express things through through your writing or through your acting that you you wouldn't normally yourself is that does that happen with puppetry as well yes one of the things about puppetry in particular and this is true of a lot of the other forms but puppetry very specifically trades on this is that the audience has to invest part of themselves in order for the character to come to life the difference between a puppet show and playing with dolls is that one of them has an audience and the puppet lives in the space between the audience and the puppeteer. So that, because of that, because of that audience investment, there are things that I can say, there are metaphors that I can do with a puppet that, that won't play in the same way if I try them in any other media. So absolutely, there are definitely things that I can do there. Likewise, with prose, there are things that you can do that don't translate when you move them to another media. There's There are books that should never be made into audiobooks because some of the aspect of them depends on, on the visuals on the page, the, the way the words lay on the page, the wordplay, things that uh, homonyms and homophones on the page don't play when they go to audio most of the time. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to make that distinction. So, so there are definitely things that, that work in one medium that just don't translate or have to be shifted into such a different way that, that it becomes a different thing. Like I did, I narrated Sherry Priest's I Am Princess X and parts of the book were told as graphic novels. So why would they choose to make that into an audiobook then? Because people like to listen to audiobooks. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> and well, and also there there are some for some people audio, you know, a, a graphic novel is not accessible. True. You have to have an audio form. So what we did for that was I say we what Sherry did for that was she wrote a radio play to take the place of the graphic novel. I did this heightened form of narration. So, you know, in a normal audio book, I would say something like, she walked down the long hallway. And in this, it was like, she walked down the long hallway. <laughs> it's very British, uh, British radio plays. I remember yes. growing up on those. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very, very much. So 
when you're t- I have some quick fire questions about audiobooks that I'm just like massively curious about. Say an eight hour, a finished audiobook that is about eight hours. How long does that actually take you to record? Between two to three hours for each finished hour of audio. Okay. And is that, you know, fumbles of words? Is that like, what? what is it that... Why does it? Why yes. is it longer? Yeah, you have to be word perfect okay. for an audiobook. Also, any mouth noise, any so uh, clicking or popping. Here, I'm going to do a gross thing. I'm going to get close to the microphone and swallow. Okay, <laughs> it's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. So they have to take all of that out. But you actually have to swallow. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, it would help. Yeah. So any mouth noises, uh, slight bobbles on words. Sometimes what's happening is that you'll start reading a sentence and it's not going where you thought it was going. So you have to stop, parse it, start again. So it's lots of things like that. And how, like what kind of preparation do you put in for a novel? So the correct way to do it, which is, Sometimes I don't get this opportunity. I have gone in and read books cold without ever having opened them before. I don't like to do it. It's why I get paid the big bucks that I can. Mm -hmm. What I prefer to do, and also why I get paid, (laughs) what I prefer to do is actual prep, which is that I read the book. And when I read the book, I am looking for characters, character descriptions. I'm looking for unfamiliar words, words in foreign languages, Things that I am going to have to replicate in the booth. So the the book that I'm narrating right now is Night and Silence by Seanan McGuire. And she has a section in there where there is a character who has a very thick Scottish accent. And it says in the text, so thick that it sounds like a caricature. <laughs> So that's not the Scottish accent that I usually do when I do a Scottish accent. So I actually have to sit down and prep by working with some dialect tapes and might even pull out a coach for that one in order to make sure that I have something that sounds like a caricature, but still actually sounds like a real person at Mm -hmm. the same time. Because it's not enough to be able to just do the accent. I actually have to act in the accent. So it's stuff like that. Also, Seanan loves Gaelic. Bless her heart. (laughs) Fair enough. I have a Scottish husband, so I understand the uh, challenge in understanding the accent at times. (laughs) Right. So in managing these very different diverse careers that all do have that central core theme, I find a lot of people are are starting to recognize it's not a bad thing to be multi-passionate. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's even, you know, books about how to be multi-passionate and how to have a career or whatnot. What advice do you have for people that might be afraid to embark on that kind of non-traditional career path? I think that you really have to know what is important to you. Everybody has kind of a core thing that makes them feel comfortable, that makes them, that is a happy place for them. For some people, that's experimentation. For some people, that is safety. And I don't honestly think there's anything wrong with going for safety. I really don't. I think that if you want to be multi-passionate, awesome. But I just, before I start talking about that, I just want to tell people who 
don't have multi-passions, that you're not broken. That's actually totally fine. Mm -hmm. And don't feel like you have to acquire one just because other people do multiple things. It's it's totally okay to have a single thing that you're interested in. That's what geeks are, honestly, Mm -hmm. often. But if you are someone who likes a bunch of different things... Do them as a hobby, do them as a side thing, and let them slowly take over your life. Don't just quit and dive into it. And the reason I say that is because when you just quit and dive into it, true, you don't have a safety net, so you have to succeed. But because there's no safety net, you have to take all of the things that you don't want to do, and you don't have time to let yourself grow and figure out who you are in that that field because you have to start making money at it. So what my recommendation is, is that you do it as a passion until it hits a point that you are making, getting enough gigs of the type that you want to do that, that are paying you. And this is for people who are on the, I would like to, but you're getting enough of those gigs that you have to start paring down on the work you don't want to do in order to have time to do the work that you're passionate about. I like that. It's re- it puts less pressure on on the income but allows you to to enjoy it and hone that hone the skills. Yeah. That is how I managed to have three different simultaneous careers. There was also a point where in I was doing art direction, which I enjoyed, but I didn't enjoy it as much as the other things. And during the time that it was taking on more and more importance, I was giving it more time. I was spending more energy on it. But as soon as I was able to let that slide away and replace it with something that I was more passionate about, I did. It's. I found it really interesting at the beginning where you're saying it's. it's okay to not be multi-passionate because I've often heard the um which it absolutely is but I've often heard people it's almost like multi-passionate people are the weirdos so it's interesting that you caveat it the other way yeah I think that's because when I am talking to people because I have three careers and they do look very dissimilar and I do have to juggle them that that sometimes people feel like they are lesser or lacking because they don't do these things. And I just want people to remember that they're not lesser or lacking, that, you know, as Mr. Rogers says, that they're special just the way they are. It's not, everybody has something unique to offer. And it is true that sometimes that unique thing may be something that feels mundane to you. And it feels like it's not special. But one of the things about being good at something is that it's not hard for you. But for someone else, it is. Like, if you ask me to balance a checkbook, I am doomed. (laughs) We know this from 49 years of empirical evidence. (laughs) Well, minus 16. I think I got my first checkbook when I was 16. Yeah. But still, it is... Oh, and I know people like my nephew is an accountant and he looks at me so confusedly when I add instead of subtracting. He does not understand why things are hard for me. (laughs) 
but could he master a puppet? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. He's really good at poetry, though, which is, it, I look at poets, I'm like, I don't understand how you do this magic thing. Yeah. He's a poet accountant? That's incredible. Yes. Yes. That, okay, that needs to be an, a character in a book, a poet accountant. I suspect there are more of them than we think they are. Very possibly. I, I also want to ask you about short, the short stories you write. I, to me, short stories are mind-bogglingly difficult because you just have to really get to the core of a, of a, of a story or a scene. Was, this, was it ever easy for you? Or, you know, you talk about people being good at things. Was it easy for you or was it an art that you had to learn? It is an it is a thing I had to learn. Okay. I fought I fought hard for that. Oh, so hard. So when I started off, I would write stories that had a really good beginning and a really good middle and a really good end to three completely different stories that happened to have the same <laughs> set of characters. Yeah. And I took Orson Scott Card's literary boot camp. Uh, politics aside, he's a brilliant teacher. And I went in saying, I want to learn plot. I want to learn how to do this strange alchemy. And uh, that is what he teaches. So what I learned then was how to have a beginning and an end that match and how to make sure that the conflicts in the middle are connected to the, to the two things, how to make sure there are causal through lines. And once I started understanding the patterns, it became, I don't want to say easy, but it became comprehensible and something that I could do. After I took his class, and this is true for anybody who takes any intense workshop, writing was hard after the class. It was harder than when I went in. Because when I went in, I was doing things unconsciously and just sort of feeling my way through. When I came out, I had a set of tools that I was having to use very consciously. So I had to think about it every time I was writing, and they were all new and unfamiliar tools. And fortunately, because of my puppetry training, I knew that what was going on was the same thing that happens when you're learning a new form of puppet, that there's a period of time in which you have to think consciously while your brain is internalizing things. And once you've internalized it, then you can do it as naturally as walking. But the internalization process is painful. Mm. And I know a lot of people who do workshops and come out of them and hit that and don't know what's going on and stop writing because they think that they can't write because it's gotten hard. That's really good advice for any any challenge that you're taking on like that. That, I mean, it's just, it's just making me think of me watching my kids learning to, to walk or to speak or do anything like that. Yeah, the, the yeah. process to really go through that you know, they fall on their butt 20 times a day. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I actually tell people sometimes when they're learning to write. I'm like, how long did it take you to learn to walk? Yeah. Like, don't expect to master this in a weekend. It's it's an unrealistic pressure to put on yourself. Do you think it's because it's coming from inside of us that we expect that to be a, like, it? you know, you break your leg, you expect there to be a healing process. But when you're when you're learning something, you expect it to... You know, writing is what you're supposed to be good at. It's what you love. You expect it to come quicker. I think there's some of that. I also think it's that we never see other people's rough drafts. Yeah. So every time we're thinking about writing, we're basing it on somebody else's finished product. And sometimes we're judging it against our own finished product, having forgotten about all of the process of getting there. 
So would would you ever go, do you go through the beta reader process? Do people see your rough drafts? Yeah. Yes. Very much so. Uh, I am, and this is again where my theater background betrays me. If I don't have an audience, I stall. My stuff just, it's the only time that I have the the writer anxiety, the classic, oh no, I'm terrible, everybody hates everything I've ever written. Mm-hmm. Only time I have that, when I have an audience, I can tell whether or not it's working. And all I'm curious about when I'm handing it to my beta readers is, does this play? Mm-hmm. I don't want to know about language. I don't want to know about, oh, you, you use the word blue five times in this paragraph. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I just want to know about the emotional arc of the scene. Were you confused? That I should fix. If you weren't confused, if you just think it's awkward, be quiet. It's not (laughs) helpful right now. So I hand it to beta readers to find out whether or not it plays. And for me, it's much like having someone in the audience doing dress rehearsals, doing invited rehearsals, just doing a designer run through. These are all things where you show someone a product that is not finished and you all have an agreement that it's not finished, but you can see the shape of it and whether or not the shape is working. And it strikes me that it's it's important to shift that thinking uh, from feeling self-critical about anything to, mm-hmm. to curiosity. Curiosity yeah. changes it all. That is a great, really good frame for that. I am totally stealing that. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's very much what it is, because it is, it is the question of, you know, this is a tool that I'm using, this manuscript. Is this the right tool? It's not, it has nothing to do actually with the story that's in your head. It is all about whether or not the tool itself is working. And if it's not, then you swap it out for a different tool. So when you're, I'm, I'm just going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. Because I did have a question from one of our uh, one of our listeners when oh, yes. when she found out we were having you on the podcast, she was super pumped, and I got a million text messages from her. Uh, <laughs> so the one that she was she's a writer herself. Uh, we'll give a little shout out to Kate, but she was curious. Writing can be a very insular profession, and I, I would imagine being even though you've got an editor. Uh, uh, a production person being in a, an audio booth narrating a book can also be quite insular. How do you ba- balance mental health when you're in that deep work mode and you got to kind of shut things off? That's a great question. Hi, Kate. <laughs> um, so for me, what I find is that when I am in the zone, I'm fine. Like the, while I'm working, I'm fine. The fact that there's no one around is no big deal. When I am not in the zone or when I am having a bad mental health day for reasons that are separate from the writing, sometimes they are connected, but, um, since I do deal with depression, sometimes it's just like, well, that that's happening today. Mm -hmm. What I do is a couple of things. One is recognizing how to manage my symptoms, uh, which I've worked very hard on learning how to do. And I will do virtual writing dates where I'll start up a, uh, a chat session or a, a video room and invite other people in to hang out with me. Or I will make a date to go meet someone in person and, and write in the booth. It's no, it's not such a big deal. There is an engineer and I'll record for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours at a time. And then I take a break and we chat and we socialize. So the the booth, the booth days are actually some of my most socially active days. Okay. 
the writing is where I can can become insulated. The other thing that I do, and I am, and I acknowledge that I am odd. For I don't know any other writers, or I don't know many who are approach writing the same way. But I post my stuff for my Veda readers kind of as soon as I finish it. I stay about two chapters ahead of them, but my reward for finishing, say, chapter three is that I get to post chapter one. What that means is that as I am going through my writing process, my beta readers are commenting, I use Google Docs, they're commenting on the work that I have already produced. So there's already this kind of excitement and enthusiasm that is helping keep me going. And that is one of the things that works for me. That will not work for everybody. A lot, a lot of people, that is just going to make them more tense and anxious. So, and this is where it gets tricky when I'm when trying to give advice about how to handle that sort of thing is that everybody's brain is built differently. Mm-hmm. And the things that make you feel happy and secure are going to be different from person to person. So for me, it's finding little ways to make sure I have social contact. But I'm I'm very much an extrovert. Oh, I mean, really, I guess I'm an ambivert because I love people for a really long time. And then I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the other thing that I'll try to do is actually just, and I have a to-do list. I use Habitica, which is a fantastic website and app that I encourage everyone to try. I use Habitica. And one of the things that I have on, on it is a task that says, go outside. So <laughs> I, I just try to go outside every day. Fresh air. I'm telling you, uh, as some, I, first of all, I'm so glad to hear you talk about your how you manage depression because I think it's the more people that talk about this the better I personally deal with depression and have dealt with postpartum which was no Oof. no fun um fresh air made such a difference and it and it sounds so cliche but it does not cliche if it works exactly yeah you have been part of the writing excuses podcast for quite some time not from the beginning but right. it, I joined in season six in season six. OK, because I saw that they had interviewed you in season three a couple times. And then I guess they just loved you so much they, <laughs> that you <laughs> that you joined full time. Um, first of all, is that a passion project or did that is that a project you make some income from? Like, is it how it's do you both. it's both? Yeah, it's both. I would absolutely do writing excuses if I made no money from it whatsoever. The fact that it also provides a little bit of income. That's a handy thing. Yeah. Does it provide enough income to pay the rent? No, it does not. <laughs> yeah. I'm a podcaster. I totally understand. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that is, that is for all of us, a passion project. Like Brandon totally does not need any of the income that we're yeah. making <laughs> yeah. from writing excuses. Yeah. But all four of us are people who like teaching and all of us are people who benefited from someone else teaching us. And so this is a way to pay it forward and to, to give thanks to a community that helped us. And it's fun. And also it makes me a better writer because I having to articulate my process and having to articulate my process to people who will challenge me mm-hmm. is really just delightful. Yeah. What is it they say when you're playing tennis or something, play with a stronger player? Oh, the same. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like it's the same for this 
Very, very similar. Jim Henson had a thing that he said that the secret to his success is that he always hired people who were better than he was. I love that. It's, yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's great. So 13 seasons, thousands of episodes. How do you keep content fresh or do you recycle some stuff and sort of build on it? Well, that actually was starting to become a problem. So what we introduced last year was guest hosts. And the guest hosts are with us for the entire season. And then I think we introduced that last year. Believe so. Yes, I think this is yeah, this is our second season with guest hosts. Sorry. There's a moment of getting confused because we record at this point pretty close to a year ahead of time like we have already recorded all of the 2018 episode, season episodes. So I was like, Whoa. Oh, really? You batched them oh, all? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, we batched them all. So what we do is we have a couple of configurations of the podcast team. We have the core cast, which is me, Brandon, Dan, and Howard. And so we'll record 12 episodes together. Six episodes on one day, six episodes on the next then we have the, quote, Utah cast, which is Brandon, Dan, Howard, and then we fly in someone that uh, we're excited about talking to, and they record 12 episodes. Then we have the, quote, Chicago cast, which is Brandon, me, and then two guests, and again, we record 12 episodes. And then we do some wild cards where we're all at a convention together. And then we also record them on the writing excuses workshop and cruise. So, so we batch them. So by the end of this year, we will have had, we will have all of the 2019 episodes recorded. It's interesting because it's so much easier on us, but I also miss the years when I would fly out two or three times a year in order to record episodes with the guys. Mm -hmm. So the you said you were running out of content. So guest hosts come and they... Oh, right. So they have, they have different perspectives. One of the things about writing excuses is that we are all white. We are all straight. We are all cis. Mm -hmm. and, and the guys are all Mormon. And we're actually all pretty close in age. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of variation in experience. And after a certain point, we were, you know, we had begun repeating ourselves. So bringing in writers with different backgrounds, with different approaches to writing fiction has made a huge difference for us because once again, we're having to think about things in different ways. So not only are the writers that we've been bringing in introducing new content on their own they're also challenging us to follow suit and to not use our same old default answers so it's been super exciting i'm really looking forward to next year because one of the guests that i'm not going to tell you who the guests are because we have not announced that yet but one of them is an agent okay yeah and i'm really excited about having that that other perspective on this entire process talking to our listeners, because that's a, that's an area that we have a weakness. So that's, again, what we did was we followed the Henson method and we looked for people who were better at it than we were and who also had different experiences than we did. Yeah. And it's, there's gotta be different stuff that comes up all the time, depending, like, do your, do your listeners reach out to you saying, I want to hear about this? I want to hear about that. 
They do. And that is one of the downsides to recording this far in advance is that if something comes up in a, an episode and a listener has a follow-up question about it, we can't actually address it because all of the episodes have been recorded. Mm-hmm. We do a couple of Q&A episodes and so we'll ask people to send questions in and then we'll answer those questions, but we are still batching it. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a, am I seeing this correctly? You're doing a cruise this year, a workshop on yeah, a cruise? a workshop <laughs> on a cruise. So we do this, uh, we do this every year. This will be, I think, our fifth workshop. We had been doing them on land and realized that for the amount of money that people were spending to come basically to my parents' house <laughs> and stay in a Best Western we could take them on a Caribbean cruise and teach them and they wouldn't have to pay any more money and the quality of food would be better <laughs> and the accommodations were nicer and also, again, Caribbean vacation. Yeah. So, and it was easier on us because I was, I mean, we, we all chipped in at some point, but it was my parents' house, so I did most of the cooking or was in the kitchen most of the time. Mm-hmm. I don't have to cook anymore. Like the first of the cruises, it was so easy. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, I feel like I'm asleep. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Uh, but they are, we have um, about 150 to 200 people. Uh, some of those are families. Yeah, uh, we encourage people to bring their families with them. We have a family rate, and they have daycare on the cruise ship, which was another thing oh. we could not right. <laughs> like I don't have children, and I recognize what a precious magical gift that is. Especially if you're a writer, to have like uh-huh. a block of time. Oh yeah. So so we invite instructors on. You take classes. We do single track programming so that everybody is having very much the same experience. And then we also have smaller breakout sessions where you can do uh, sign up for a critique session and have your work critiqued by peers and a professional writer. We have, uh, quote, office hours where you can wander in in the morning and say, I have a question about and someone is there and they can say, I can talk to you about that thing. (laughs) So and then and then there's also days where we are ashore and you can go and snorkel swim with dolphins climb aztec ruins or sit in a nice coffee shop and write basically it sounds like paradise so people should go (laughs) it's basically kind of paradise and and again it's like you look at the the price for the cruise and you're like ooh. But when you start adding up how much it actually costs to go to other workshops where you pay for the hotel and food separately and and, and, and the price of the workshop, you suddenly go, oh, this is actually a yeah. bargain. <laughs> I think, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Surrey. I absolutely love Surrey. But you think of what that cost is compared, you know, hotel, flight, everything. And yeah, what uh, what your cruise is. It's very yeah. competitive. So we will... It suddenly we... becomes... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly so. Now, I do uh, want to make sure we get in your new book. You've oh, got... right. Oh, that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that, that fantastic new book, Calculating Stars. I'd love you to... The premise of the book. So Calculating Stars is alternate history or science fiction, depending on how you want to count it. It is set in 1952, and it is alternate history because I do about 30 seconds into the book, slam an asteroid into Washington, (laughs) D.C. It's science fiction because from that point on, what we have is Apollo-era 
science fiction. It's it is kicking off the space race fast and early and with an international effort. And because it is in the in the 1950s when computers are still people and specifically computers are still women, if you want to go into space with a computer and if you want to colonize, women have to go into space. So it is women-centered science fiction set in the 1950s. I love it. Well, that's fantastic. And we'll be giving away a copy of an of, of the audiobook read by yourself. So before we move into the last, the five questions that I ask all of my guests, I have, I, I have one question for you, given that, given that it's all around storytelling, given that you've got these various different projects, is there a specific legacy that you want to leave? Is it something you think about? You know, this is a tricky question. And the reason that I say that it's tricky is because the word legacy can mean a lot of different things. Like when I was a puppeteer, there was a, a puppet that was a, a style of puppetry that was called a, a fetig control. And for years, I wanted to do something that would cause people to name something after me. You know, like uh, like Henson puppetry, fetid control. For years, that was something that I I was interested in. And then my husband and I decided not to have children. And that is not a decision that I regret. But one of the things that was difficult about that decision is that being from the South, heritage, legacy things that you pass on were very important. And I had kind of always assumed that there would be a child that I would be passing those things on. My name, Mary Robinette. Mary is my maternal grandmother and Robinette is my paternal grandmother. In the South, on my dad's side of the family, I am usually Mary Robinette as as a single word. Mm -hmm. So that little thing that there was not going to be a child that I could pass that name onto, that was difficult. So for me, when I think about legacy now, what I think about are the things that I would want to do for the children that I'm not going to have. I want to leave the world in a better place and because I'm not focusing on just blood relatives, that means that I am very invested in my community. And my community is science fiction and fantasy. My community is puppetry. My community is my neighbors. So I work very hard to make things better. And, and in a lot of ways, and I think this is true for a lot of people, that when you're thinking about what would be better, you think about your own childhood. And so in a lot of ways, who I am also attempting to leave it better for are for people who were like me as a child, so that they are growing up in a world that is a little safer and a little more inclusive and a little more trusting and adventurous and that's very hard right now mm -hmm. it's very hard to keep keep the eye on that prize but that is when I think of legacy that is what I try for now 
Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. So our, our standard five questions after that. <laughs> that <laughs> I, thank you for sharing that. Talk about mortality. Yeah. I appreciate it though. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's an important thing that a lot of people are considering, especially if they're, whether or not they're planning to have kids, but especially if they're not, it's, it, it does put a different, a different twist on things. Yeah. So on a lighter note, what are the, what are the things or the projects that get you fired up in a good way? Uh, I know you've got so many things on the go. So maybe just one thing that we haven't maybe talked about. Teaching. Actually. Yeah. I love teaching and I get really excited when I'm putting together a new class. And sometimes I will do beta classes where I will invite people in. It's like, okay, I'm going to teach you this class that I've never taught before. Tell me when it's confusing. Yeah. And I'll teach something and then they'll be like, I don't understand. And so I'll say, okay, well, how about this way? And they're like, almost. I'm like, how about this way? Yes, I understand. Hurrah, victory. And then the next time I just do the last. <laughs> I don't have to do the, the other iterations. Yeah. Well, I went to one of your workshops at Surrey and it was fantastic. So you're a great oh, teacher. Thank you. What is, it's hard as writers because we're also readers, but what's one of the most inspiring books that you've read in the past few years? Inspiring is, again, one of those tricky words because there's the books that inspire me to want me to be a better writer and the stuff that N.K. Jemisin writes, oh my goodness, fifth season just gutted me. I haven't heard of this. Oh, it's so good. Okay. It is an astonishing, astonishing book. Stylistically, it's super impressive. Emotionally, the emotional ride that it takes you on is just devastating and, and wonderful. The world building, like there's, it's one of those books that you read and as a writer, there's a part of your brain that is kind of angry because it's so good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one of those books. Okay. Uh, but it's not a feel-good book. <laughs> so. Totally fine. We will, we will definitely share that in the show notes. Do you have a favorite uh, quote or words that you live by? Yes. And it's not really a quote because I don't remember it completely. But it's something that Louisa May Alcott said in An Old Fashioned Girl. And the character is having a bad day. And like a really super bad day. And she kind of dusts herself off and says, well, what mom always said was the surest way to make yourself feel better is to do something nice for someone else. Mm -hmm. And I have found that to be true. Mm -hmm. I work with our local volunteer center here in Calgary and uh, we see that on the regular. So, yeah. Yeah. What's the best life lesson that you've learned or advice that you've been given? The best piece of advice that I ever got was after a puppet show, uh, things had gone, I was an intern and things had gone terribly wrong. And my mentor said, someday you're going to look back on this and laugh. So you might as well laugh now. <laughs> that has been very handy. <laughs> yeah. We take ourselves too seriously sometimes. Yeah. And the final question, Mary, is what does it mean to you to live your best life? We have been talking about this the entire podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what it means to me to live my best life is 
to be able to turn down the things that I want to do, to be able to spend time with the people that I love and to reach for tomorrow where I am better than I am today. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.